and welcome to This Week Explained, the podcast where we dig into all the big world issues. Thank you so much for tuning in. We're sorry about missing last week's episode because life threw us a curveball, you know, as it's prone to do. But no worries, we're back now and we're all geared up and ready to fill you in on this week's insights and analysis about what's shaping our global landscape. I'm Tiana. And I've got my partner in crime, Kerwin, right here with me. And our goal is to help you make sense of this ever-changing world we live in. So without stalling any longer, Kerwin, what is on your radar this week? All right, we'll get into to Russia, Ukraine, but very big news coming out this week. Um, huge, huge. Huge, yeah. Some would say huge. Huge, news. huge news. <laughs> yeah, so the, the private plane of Wagner leader... Vigny Prigochin was crashed, is what we can say right now. And it seems as if he was on that plane. I'm, I'm acting like I'm going to get into this right now. We are going to get into this after the update from Russia, Ukraine. And then after that, we'll get into the new update from the State Department urging U.S. citizens to leave Belarus and to cancel any travel to that country. We're going to do an update on the situation in Niger. Also, how the the possible death of Prigozhin might affect what's going on there. We've had a trilateral summit. That was the U.S., Japan, and South Korea got together and discussed a lot about their joint efforts in the Indo-Pacific. And what ended out with with BRICS. So we had the BRICS summit is going on this week. Hmm. Putin did not show up. Of course he didn't. He knew better than that. Yeah, but a lot of stuff. Have any sort of extradition? Well, they would be required to arrest him. They would be required. Okay. I was just wondering. Okay. Cool. Well, let's get started. What is the latest in Ukraine? Yeah. So before getting into the, the whole Prigozhin conversation, we'll start here by getting this concise update on what is now an evolving situation in Ukraine. Um, so we know that's a huge area that Ukraine has discussed trying to take back from Russia. They've consistently expressed their determination to counter Russia's occupation and trying to reclaim the Crimean Peninsula, which Russia did annex in 2014. Did these attacks on Crimea get Ukraine to a full-scale attack on that location? Well, those recent attacks show that Ukraine is taking a proactive approach, I'll say, against Russia's presence in the region. But it is worth noting that, that these attacks might not mean an immediate all-out conflict on the Crimean Peninsula. These attacks could be part of a bigger plan to weaken Russia's defenses and then disrupt their operations on the peninsula. So basically, Ukraine might be setting the stage for a larger-scale offensive, maybe not a full-scale attack down the road to retake Crimea. How close they are to a full-scale attack is going to depend on a few things. That's things like their military capabilities right now, which they're still... They're still reeling from losing a, a lot of equipment. Also, how the world kind of reacts to these initial attacks on Crimea. If it's seen in a positive light, they can ramp it up. If not, they'll just stop it. But then also, how the situation keeps changing on the ground. Do they need to move troops in other areas away from Crimea? Well, let's get to the biggest geopolitical event of the week. A private plane owned by Wagner boss Prigozhin crashed near Moscow, killing everyone on board. And from all the reporting, it does appear that Prigozhin and the founder of the Wagner Group were on the plane and died in the crash. 
can you give an update on the latest reporting? And then we definitely need to get into how this changes the future operations of the Wagner Group. Yeah, and it's, I mean, this is huge news. No one, I mean, everyone was expecting he would be suicided or or something. Well, I mean, technically, can we not say that he was basically kind of suicided? Yeah. Yeah, but you know, most people are falling out of windows, and I did see the one comment of like, well, they they really launched Pergochin out of the highest window they could find. <laughs> so, that's so, so that happened. Not, that's enough. But memes aside, let's start with the facts. Right. And so that's what we would, in the intelligence community, say are the known knowns in this yeah. situation. So here's the here are the known knowns, a, a private plane owned by Pergochin crashed in Russia. That is absolutely what we know. We know that for sure through video and then through the flight data. We know it's his plane and that it crashed. That's pretty much all the known knowns because the everything else surrounding Prokochin's plane crash is just not known at all. It's all speculation. Yeah, Russia's being very careful about the information that gets out right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. They're, they're getting their heavy hitters out there saying, you know, trying to, to push a certain narrative, and they don't want to confirm right now that, that Prigozhin has died. Putin's got to keep his hands clean for the for the election coming next year. Yes, you know? exactly. So, yeah, and he will try to frame it in, in certain ways, and I saw this morning that he did actually start doing that by saying that Prigozhin was a good man, he didn't disparage him at all, so it's... So he's choosing to martyr him instead? Yeah, and, and trying to regain the the ability to use the Wagner forces the way he wants to use them. But, if, I mean, aren't they currently claiming that it was a Russian defense missile That's what system? they say. That's, that's another thing that's part of the known unknowns. We just okay. don't know. We don't know uh, definitively if that's what took it down correct okay we don't even have 100 percent assurances that progochin was on the plane right we've heard he was on the manifest but it is highly likely that he was there and that he did die in that crash now given his hope high profile role in leading the wagner group this incident's definitely going to have far-reaching implications. Mm-hmm. The fact that the crash occurred just months after his involvement in a short-lived that march on Moscow. Yeah, um, it happened when we were in New York. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so the fact that it happened just a couple of months after that makes this more than just coincidental, I would say. Yeah, and if it does come out that it was a Russian... You know, brought down by Russian forces. Why would people listen to any of the nice things he's saying about Prigozhin? Like, yeah, that was him and, that did it. And I did see a report. Still trying to confirm things, but I did see a report where they found debris from Russian air defense missiles within the debris of the crash. Okay. Well. Now, yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry, guys. I know, that's what you were going to say. I don't know. Uh, I was just going to say that the U.S. intelligence community just came out and said that they believe that there was a device on board the plane that blew up, which caused it to crash. So theories all over the place. Two conflicting theories. One obviously would swing things more in the direction that Putin would have wanted to go. Yeah. (laughs) And the other ones, you know, 
Well, when we talked about this as it was happening, you made mention of conversations in pro-Wagner telegram channels about the plane being shot down by Russian air defense systems, which is why I brought it up. Yeah. So did you find anything that confirms this at all? Or did it simply have that mechanical failure and crash that you mentioned? Yeah, it's it, it's this is a good discussion to have. And I'll, I'll say, as with anything coming out of Russia, we just have to be very cautious about taking everything we read as fact. That's just not what Russia does when they're... That's not what any country does when they're trying to stick to a narrative. So it's not even just Russia. But there are many theories coming out. I talked about a few of them, and so it's kind of hard to keep track. I think the, the prevailing Russian theory right now is that it had... So what Putin is trying to say is that the air crew... It, it was an air crew mishap, and that's what, what terrorists, that's what, that's what Putin wants to say. The other thing is Russian officials are also coming out saying that they were investigating this as a terrorist attack. So that's another theory. So you have that theory. You have the, the theory that's now being put out in Russia of a possible crew mishap. What is a and crew it, mishap? Meaning that the, the pilot or the co-pilot did something incorrectly or did not check something on the flight that made it inoperable and crashed. So they just, they did something very. Yeah. That's so that's one of the theories under the bus. The other one kind of outside of the outside of the box. And this one coming from outside of Russia is that the plane, the plane malfunctioned due to sanctions placed on Russia. Oh, America did it. Well, I don't, I don't understand how they could have malfunctioned because of sanctions that we placed on them. Well, it it is possible that <laughs> since this jet, the, uh-huh. it's the Embraer jet, that's the company that makes it, they have parts from Western nations. So this particular jet would not have been able to get the necessary parts if there was an issue with the aircraft. And then they would mix and match plane parts, and that would definitely lead to a malfunction oh. that could take the plane down. Okay, well, that does... That does make a lot more sense whenever you explain it like that. So, but what are you thinking? What do you think actually happened here? Is it just another accident or was Putin somehow involved in killing yet another rival? So I'll give my informed opinion, but it's okay. still an opinion here. Right, um, right, right, right. And then I'll kind of give the reasoning behind that opinion. Uh, but I'm, I'll also say we we may never truly know what happened. Only what Russia puts out publicly and so we're not going to get all the facts. We all know that's not going to have the full story on everything that happened. But my opinion is that, of course, the plane was either shot down or had something on board that blew up and took it down. And that order, it had to come from Putin. You know, I don't, I don't think this was the plan all along. I don't think this is how you wanted to take out. But there's so much going on in the world and the BRICS summit and there's, you know, the the GOP presidential debates, Trump being indicted. The world's talking about so many things that I think Putin saw an opportunity here to eliminate the biggest threat to his presidency. I don't think he's wrong because I've barely seen it reported, even as like a hypothetical, oh, he could have crashed, but we aren't entirely sure. I haven't seen anybody reporting on it really like for a while it was on all the news pages but then it just disappeared just as quickly 
Yeah, if you hop on, you know, Yahoo or, or Google News, you're going to see tons of reporting on the Republican presidential debates. Mm-hmm. You're going to see tons of reporting. And we'll talk about this at the end, you know, the, the things that have happened with the BRICS summit. And you've got to scroll down pretty far to see that this happened. I mean, as it happened, there was a lot of chatter and we, we kind of saw a lot of reporting. But then, like you said, after that, it, it just died off. So what exactly do you think this means for the future of the Wagner Group? Well, the loss of Prigozhin and, you know, the founder and right. a bunch of other high-up leaders that were... Eight, it plane. was like eight other people, right? Wasn't yes, it, it, well, it was seven people? seven people, seven Wagner-affiliated people from what I've I've read. Two, two per- pilots and one crew member? One, one stewardess, yes. Yeah, okay. So all of that creates a void. That's going to be very challenging to fill. Wagner's operations in Africa relied heavily on the relationship that, you know, Prigozhin basically cultivated. Connections that he that he made now may be fractured. So those people may not want to talk to Wagner. The future of, of Wagner, especially in Africa, is uncertain. So without his leadership, the group's structure and dynamics may undergo significant changes. Now, the group's activities had already faced challenges, especially after that march on Moscow. But now with his death and the loss of those other... Bog- put, put death in quotes, yeah, right? Let's, okay. let's, yeah, the, so. the, lo- the death and loss of these people in quotes because we have nothing definitive yet. Exactly. I mean, obviously people did die. We just haven't had any confirmation as to who died. Right, and, and how high up that the chain yeah, goes. Right. Now, the group's presence in Ukraine had already been reduced, so they weren't being part of those offensives in Ukraine. And it that had happened, you know, for the past two months as it sought a new role because Putin was so displeased, so they sent him to Belarus. Right now, what I'm seeing is that reports are indicating that hundreds of Wagner fighters who had been exiled to the base in Belarus have started to leave the country. And they're saying that this is due to dissatisfaction with the lower pay levels. Now their leader is possible could could have died in a plane crash. Yeah, the person uh, who spoke for him and advocated for him is gone. Their yep. leader. <laughs> a, a lot of these guys this is the only leader that they've known. So we're seeing some reports that those guys are going to relocate to West Africa and continue to f- the fight in West Africa. Right now, it looks like their strength has been reduced by about a quarter from its original number of over 5,000 troops. Mm. But as the speculation swirls, and you're going to hear it a lot over the next few weeks about possible replacements for Prigozhin, it's uncertain whether anyone can fill his shoes. We, we don't even, because you know Putin's going to put his person in there. Right. Can that person effectively lead the Wagner group? Like I, don't think, I really don't think they will want to listen to him. Right. Whoever and they place. Exactly. Their, lo- their loyalty was with Prigozhin, and he's not there. Their loyalty is gone. Like, yeah, what we saw this that. do to earn their loyalty? They're just Definitely. planted there. We saw that on the march to Moscow. You you don't right. march to Moscow unless you are going to leave a wall for this person. Yeah, they believed in him, so... So without Prigozhin, the Wagner Group's future is uncertain. It, it remains to be seen if the organization can continue its activities in Africa and other regions without that guiding force. 
I'll say the group's fate hinges on a few factors, the main one being who's going to take over. So we'll see who they have, who they're going to, who's Putin's going to put in. And then the other thing is their ability to adapt to that new leadership. That's what's going to get them success or failure. I bet part of the reason why Putin's saying all these nice things about their former leader is it would make it more palatable. Whenever he places in his in his stead, in Bergostin's stead, whoever he places at the head of this group, if he's saying nice things about their previous leader, they might be more inclined to trust this new person. Yeah, but, definitely. But if they also prove that like it was Russian military equipment that brought him down, then that would not against <laughs> what he's trying to do. I don't know. And don't know. and this is the game that Putin has to play. But I just hope people aren't dumb enough. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean <laughs> Don't believe it. He's lying. And and there is, you know, this media silence to anything anti Putin. So you know what you know the message that Putin is putting out is what's going to be broadcasted. So are these forces going to believe that? And if they do, that's going to make it a lot easier for a Putin led leader to come in and do what Putin wants, which is So have the Wagner forces put out a statement since they learned of the alleged death of their leader and the founder? Yeah, they did. I'm going to quote them directly because it came from a video that was posted on Twitter where Wagner forces in Belarus said this, and here is their quote. said, there's a lot of talk right now about what the Wagner group will do. We can tell you one thing. We are getting started. Get ready for us. I don't think they believed Putin. Well, if you... <laughs> I don't think they believe him at all. <laughs> that quote would definitely lead us down that direction yeah well i mean it will be very interesting to track where wagner forces stationed in belarus go after you know the confirmation of Prigozhin's death speaking of belarus the u.s state department put out an advisory telling all u.s citizens to leave the country and to rethink any future travel to belarus did the state department give a reason why they are increasing the security level for travel to belarus yeah they sure did so I'll just reiterate what you said. The State Department issued the alert for travel to Belarus. They increased the travel advisory to a level four, which is a do not travel. So when you go in the State Department, you look up Belarus, it'll be a big red block. It says do not travel. On that website, it also states that this was due to the Belarusian authorities' continued facilitation of Russia's war against Ukraine, uh, the buildup of Russian military forces in Belarus, the arbitrary enforcement of local laws, the potential of civil unrest, the risk of detention, and the embassy's limited ability to assist U.S. citizens that are residing in or traveling to Belarus. It also mentions the fact that Belarusian authorities have detained tens of thousands of individuals, including U.S. citizens, for alleged affiliations with opposition parties and alleged participation in political demonstrations. Not mentioned in this is something we've discussed about the potential for border clashes near the Polish and Belarusian border. Do you think this has anything to do with the increased level of security? It it doesn't say it specifically on the State right. Department website, but you're you're tracking it definitely that definitely has a lot to play in this. I think it's the the prevailing 
thing Look that's coming out of it. Brain on bread. Yeah, but you know, certainly it's never just one thing that forces these heightened security levels. So let's start back in February of 2022. We all know what happened then. This is right after Russia invaded Ukraine. The U.S. ordered the departure of U.S. government employees and the suspension of operations of the U.S. embassy in Minsk, the capital of Belarus. So this action makes it very difficult to support U.S. citizens when traveling to Belarus. So you couple that with the possibility of armed conflict along the border, and it's just best to dissuade all Americans from traveling to that country. What would you tell someone who has to travel to Belarus, maybe for business or they have family there that they want to visit? Except for don't go. Um, Except for don't go. Which, who am I to say that? I've been to so many countries I should not have been in. Well, you uh, had to. Don't. Right. Like, what are you talking about? You had to go. They required your presence. <laughs> right. No, I think that's what you're trying to, to get at. If your presence is required in that country, you have to get there. So what, what would I... What, what did I do and what would I tell people to do? I, like always, have a contingency plan in place. Usually my contingency plans are know the number for the embassy and call the embassy when something happens. Right. You can't do that here. So you're going to have to have a contingency plan in place, but it has to be one that does not rely on the U.S. government to assist you because you're not going to get the support there. Also, a few other big things, and these are things I say on a daily basis when we're in D.C., Avoid large clouds, crowds, <laughs> stick to the large clouds, though. They'll cover yeah. the sun. No, yeah. sorry. Avoid large crowds. Definitely avoid protests and speaking out against both the Belarusian and the Russian government. Oh, my gosh. Of course. And then if you do find yourself there uh, and there's a large crowd or there's a protest and you're like, oh, I really support what they're saying here. Keep your opinions to yourself. You can <laughs> tell yourself it. You, yeah. Tell yourself how much you agree with what they're saying, but keep that to yourself. You're going to get arrested if you try to speak out. Well, that's sound advice, so thank you for that. <laughs> with what happened in Russia and the comments coming out of Belarus, I want to get an update on what is happening in Niger, and maybe you can talk through how this changes Russia's plans on the continent, if at all. Yeah, more big news for the week because of the, the Prigozhin possible death. There was plenty of news coming out of Niger at the same time. One being the African Union said that they have suspended Niger from all its activities following the coup. That suspension is going to remain in place until constitutional order is restored in the country. Now, the Economic Community of Western African States, you'll see that as uh, ECOWAS or E-C-O-W-A-S. They made a decision to prepare a standby force for potential deployment that initially given the coup leader's seven-day seven ultimatum to return power to civilian authorities or they would face consequences. In those consequences, they said that that would be military action. Now, Niger's military ruler, that's General Abdurrahman Chiani, it's the guy that took power in the coup, indicated that neither the junta nor the people of Niger desire conflict and remain open to die. They do remain open to dialogue. He announced the transition's principles would be decided through a national dialogue that would be hosted by them within the next 30 days. And he asked the global community, hey, guys, give us three years to implement this new government, and it'll be fine. That is a fairly robust update on the current situation in, in Niger. Um, let's talk about how the landscape has changed now 
that the leader of Wagner forces, who had been very prominent on the continent of Africa as late as last week, he had videos that he was put a video. And he's so the leader is now gone, and new leadership will obviously be taking over at some point. So does this change the Wagner presence in Niger? So I don't see much change as they serve multiple interests of the Russian state, and they can be kind of separated from Wagner's Ukraine and Russia operations, which most of those guys, like we talked about, went to Belarus. They're trying to get out to West Africa, but those two are, are separate entities, Wagner of West Africa and then the Wagner that's supporting the Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But moments after the military march on Moscow was halted, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov said that Wagner's operations in, Va- in Africa are going to continue. So even after they marched on Russia, Putin and Lavrov still saw Wagner as forces that need to be in Africa, and that can, that needs to that mission needs to continue. So Wagner's operations in Africa are likely to endure even under a new leadership and, frankly, a new structure as the group is. So even with a new leader likely put in power by Putin, you don't see much change in Wagner activities on the continent of Africa. Uh, I don't, and like you, uh, I'm glad you put that up. Like we've been talking about, likely going to be put in power by Putin. That's definitely what's going to happen, right? I don't see the activities changing on the continent of Africa, and they're still going to play a prominent role in fighting in Syria. What makes you believe their mission is unchanged? Well, it goes back to what I what I said that you pretty much nailed. The new Wagner leader is going to be placed by Putin. Or at the very least, a, he's that person is going to be a Putin supporter. Africa is very important to Russia. It has many extremely useful resources. We're already seeing China take advantage of mining Africa's resources. And Wagner's forces are going to need to be in place to keep those mines secure for Chinese and Russian businesses. Also, the Wagner Group's protection of gas and oil fields in Syria on behalf of Bashar al-Assad plays into Russia's global energy coercion. These two missions are likely unfazed by recent developments. There's also this anti-Western information operation campaign coming out of Russia. Putin wants to see France, the U.S., and U.K. pushed out of Africa so they can continue its strategic mission on the continent. Now, the, the Wagner Group has found itself frequently at odds with either the FS, the, the Russian Federal Secret Service or directly with the Russian government because of its ambitious leadership. So now Putin can kind of regain influence within the group and refocus that mission, and this will be especially especially noticeable in Africa. This would be an interesting development as the death of Prigozhin really does change the geopolitical landscape across multiple continents. So let's move to the Indo-Pacific and get an update on the trilateral summit between the U.S., Japan, and South Korea. What was discussed, and did they see any retaliation from North Korea? Yeah, so the summit was planned for a while, and as you alluded to, North Korea hasn't been happy about it from the start. But I guess, we'll, like I said, we'll start with what happened at the summit. The leaders of each country have been very vocal in expressing their concern about actions they say undermine the rules-based international order, and they also say that it threatens regional peace and prosperity. They were very vocal about pointing out that 
China's behavior in the South China Sea has been more aggressive, and they oppose any attempts to change the status quo in the Indo-Pacific. That's a direct fire at China saying, do not attack Taiwan, keep things as they have been in the Indo-Pacific. They also emphasize the importance of peace and stability, like I said, in the for Taiwan, but especially in the Taiwan Strait. And this needs to be stable for global security and, honestly, for global prosperity. So that is a direct shot at China. Can we discuss China's response to these comments before we get to the North Korean response? Yeah, it is. It's definitely a perfect place to start. China's response to the summit was obviously critical. It's not a shock. But it seems like this is what I find the statement really interesting. Because to me, it seems like Xi is taking a page out of the Putin playbook. He called So Xi called this trilateral summit a mini-NATO being established in the Indo-Pacific. As we've discussed before, this is the reasoning that Putin gave for invading Ukraine. NATO, he says, had been knocking on the door of Russia. Mm-hmm. It's sovereignty. Sounds to me like Xi is working through how he plans to frame an invasion of Taiwan as protecting the sovereignty of China, perhaps. Now, let's discuss North Korea's actions, as they were more tangible than just words. What can you tell us about how Kim Jong-un reacted? Yeah, so let's get into the direct actions from North Korea, and then we'll briefly discuss another failure from North Korea that they even came out and admitted that it was a failure, again. And then we'll get into the BRICS discussion to close out the episode, but Kim Jong-un ordered a ballistic missile launch towards Japan, as they tend to do when any activity in the region involves the United States. Another interesting action was that North Korea decided to use this time frame of this event to launch its second attempt at a spy satellite. I like how you called it an attempt. It was, that's all it was. An attempt at a spy satellite. Because once again, it failed. Because it was made out of spaghetti. Spaghetti. <laughs> now picture a launch of a plate of spaghetti into the... It didn't work this time. <laughs> Darn. Um, so bes- we had it this time. <laughs> besides the spaghetti into the Korean Peninsula... Another interesting thing about this satellite launch is that North Korea actually told each one of the nations, South Korea, Japan, and the U.S., that they were going to perform this launch. And they confirmed that they were using it as a form of protest against what those countries were doing. Of course. Right. So Japan then told North Korean officials basically to kick rocks and that they would regret carrying out the launch. Obviously, that did not dissuade Kim Jong-un from failing once again. Once again, the spaghetti satellite failed. So, are there any plans at a third attempt? And people, I'm kidding, it's not made out of spaghetti. We have to say that because some people get a little ticked off at some of the things that come out of my mouth. So, it's not really spaghetti, guys. It's a joke. Okay? Thank you. Let's move on. (laughs) It was actually cardboard. It's actually That's not true. Cardboard and peanut butter. Sorry, but guys. South Korea did pick up the first one, so we may find out sometime in the future what it actually was made out of. Yeah, and it wasn't spaghetti or peanut butter. It'd be cool if it was. Yeah. But you asked about a third attempt, right? And... Did yes. I ask? I don't know. 
Yeah, I think you did. You've lost it. Athena uh, is not feeling well. I have the worst sinus pressure, so the fact that I'm getting through this recording, I'm actually kind of proud of myself. I don't sound as sick as I thought I would, but my face is pounding. I feel like I have like an elephant sitting on my occipital bones. Now, I was about to hit the clapping, hand clapping, or a sound effect like that, but we don't. Do you want the dramatic music? For what? For making it through the podcast. Oh, yeah. We can celebrate at the end, though. Let's get oh, through okay. this. Let's get, Let's through, get this. through this. <laughs> but yeah, so are there, and I didn't finish, you know, asking the question, I don't think. Are there plans for a third attempt to release a satellite? Yes. There definitely is. So Kim has made it known. This this could be one of the most important achievements of his regime is to get this the spy satellite up. And so they're going to continue to attempt to get a satellite in space. So yes, we're, we're likely to see a third launch and possibly many, many more because I do have a feeling they will fail again. Can't stop, won't stop. Well, then, as North Korea tries to perfect its satellite launches, let's get into one of the events we've been talking about for months now, and that is the BRICS Summit. Putin did not show up in person, since that would put South Africa in a very peculiar situation of protecting an ally while not, while trying not to get hit by sanctions for not arresting Putin. Aside from that, what else has come out of this summit so far? All right, so here's just a brief rundown, and then we'll break down the geopolitical implications. First day of the summit, leaders discussed the issue of expanding BRICS membership. That's that's a huge thing. It's it's a wholly contested plan. Some some of the countries do not agree with doing this. The China and Russia have been pushing for the expansion for BRICS. There, like I said, there is no consensus among the member states on which countries should be invited. But after that discussion, they also discussed the issue of strengthening economic cooperation. They agreed to work together to promote trade and investment and to develop new financial mechanisms, possibly a new global currency. They also discussed the issue of countering the influence of Western countries. I believe that was the top topic during this summit. They expressed concern about the increasing interference of Western countries in the affairs of developing countries. That is that is a way for them to sort of branch out to those developing countries, and, and they can now begin to promote BRICS as we are the organization for those developing countries. Finally, they discussed the issue of the global food crisis. They agreed to work together to address the crisis. Uh, I don't think that was a top their list of things to do, but it was something that they said, hey, let's publicly put this out. We can tell people we want to ensure food is accessible to everyone and kind of look in a good light. Is North Korea part of BRICS or no? It is not. Okay. I was about to say, they talked about making food accessible <laughs> to everyone. Okay. Anyways... Let's get into the talk about possible new members. Now, G spoke about the trilateral summit as a, quote, mini NATO, end quote. But could this expansion of BRICS also be a mini NATO as well? Honestly, I don't see it as a mini NATO. It's like a full-fledged NATO. 
it is NATO. Um, right. But with different countries. With different countries. So it's a, it's a direct counter to NATO. And that's why they keep saying, we're against Western influence. We want the West to stay out of it. They're really positioning themselves as a counter to NATO. The, the BRICS group is really looking at getting heavy players in the, you know, the global realm into their organization. Can you run through the list of countries that they're looking to add? Yeah, so for this summit, what they're going to be voting on is the, the memberships of Argentina, Egypt, Ethiopia, Iran, the United Arab Emirates, or the UAE, and Saudi Arabia. They've all been invited to join the BRICS club. Well, that's a very diverse group of countries, and I'm hearing a few U.S.-aligned countries with the UAE, Saudi Arabia, and Egypt. So does this change how the U.S. views those countries now? doesn't change the current state of relations, but it does not improve relations, that's for sure. So the U.S. is going to, I would hope, keep a close eye on how this all plays out. Each of the countries mentioned are of... Well, the ones that you talked about, the UAE, Saudi Arabia, and Egypt, are their valued U.S. partners in counterterrorism, anti-trafficking, regional security operations. I'd say that Iran is probably the only outlier in that group of countries, but we've talked about this for a while, and we've known for a while that Iran was going to join the BRICS alliance. One thing a lot of the countries here have in common is that their economies rely heavily on oil and gas production. Do you think that is a strategic advantage for the organization? Yeah, you make a good point. Once formally voted in to the organization, BRICS is going to have six of the top ten oil producers in the world. That's a share of 40% of the world's oil output just among those small faction of countries. That's going to put the organization in a great economic position, for sure. So while Western nations are kind of looking for alternatives to fossil fuel, it looks like the BRICS group is just going to double down on oil. We think it's it's good for global economy, and they're, they're going to go with it. So we'll couple that with an attempt to use gold to back its possible future currency. It positions BRICS as, honestly, a, a global heavy hitter. They are going to be on the level of NATO. It could actually even surpass NATO in just a few years if BRICS actually gets the right countries and they, you know, afford membership to the right countries and this all plays out properly for BRICS. Do you think NATO and the U.S. would then see BRICS as a threat to Western democracy? Well, I think NATO's being pretty careful with this expansion. It's just to kind of wait and see how it all pans out. It might be a good idea for them to kind of, I don't know, have a chat with countries like the UAE and Saudi Arabia, give them a heads up about what joining the alliance really means, what it could do negatively for those countries. But right now, there's not really an immediate threat or anything coming from from BRICS as of today. What I'm really going to keep an eye on, though, is Mexico talking about wanting to jump into the BRICS club. That's right. interesting because it that would mean they're right on the U.S. border. We've got our own set of issues on the U.S. border. I'm not entirely sure how the U.S. would handle that situation. I wouldn't be surprised if they condemn the BRICS invite if it does actually happen. Like I said, Mexico has reached out, but BRICS has not formally accepted you know, Mexico yet. Mexico. 
but we don't know that's that's probably years down the line so we don't know if it's actually going to happen but considering nato is right there on russia's doorstep it's a bit tricky for the u.s to call foul and then point the fingers at russia for for similar moves because that's what happened putin has been saying nato's on our doorstep nato's on our doorstep we have to to do something about it can't you can't be a hypocrite and kind of do the exact same thing and that's just the tricky part about the whole geopolitics game Uh, there's a lot of gray area and even when a country thinks it's taking the high road you know circumstances like this can kind of push them into changing their tune excellent point thank you kevin is that all for this week uh that's it for me unless you had anything nope i'm gonna go take a nap all right garbage Anyways, thank you for listening to our humble little independent geopolitical podcast. We hope you found it both informative and engaging. And if you have any feedback or suggestions for future episodes, please let us know. And if you would like in-depth coverage of these stories and more, follow us on Instagram at Oakland Analytics. Tiana, thank you so much. And until next week, stay safe out there.